Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Here comes Clint Eastwood in Coogan's Bluff. Clint Eastwood is Coogan. You from Texas? Arizona. And Coogan gives New York 24 hours to get out of town. Clint Eastwood, Arizona Sheriff. Unpredictable, unconventional, applies the techniques of the modern Western lawman to ride herd on the lawless in the joints and nightclubs of a big city. Susan Clark, she makes Coogan's blood boil in more ways than one can imagine. She falls for Coogan's bluff. Don Stroud, dangerous hopped up killer, who is cornered by Coogan's bluff. Tisha Sterling, the beautiful decoy who calls Coogan's bluff. Betty Field, who unwittingly buys Coogan's bluff. And Lee J. Cobb, the tough police lieutenant who challenges Coogan's bluff. Get the hell out of my office and don't come back until I send for you. You blew a stake out! Bastard. She gave me a play-by-play description of how you slept with her. You came here at four o'clock in the morning just to tell me all this. An animal. Jimmy! The cowboy. He was right behind me. Now he's gone. What'd you bring him here for? You're a little freak. Coogan here. Wrong number. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to talk about the movie Coogan's Bluff from 1968. Now, the studio was Universal Pictures. The release date was October 2nd, 1968. The running time was 93 minutes. The rating was R, making it one of the first movies that actually was under the new rating system. The budget was $1.5 million. The box office took in $3.1 million, making it the 21st most ranking film in 1968. Rotten Tomatoes gave Coogan's Bluff 94% fresh from 17 reviews. Roger Ebert gave it 3 out of 4 stars, and here's his review. Coogan's Bluff is a retelling of one of the oldest American themes. The unspoiled country boy comes to a big city and tests his frontier values against corruption of civilization. This time, the hero is a strong, silent deputy sheriff from Arizona dispatched to New York City to extradite a killer. He runs afoul of big city criminals and gets tangled up in laws which say an Arizona deputy can't act like a New York cop. Not in New York, anyway. As Coogan, Clint Eastwood is well cast. In a series of Italian westerns like A Fistful of Dollars, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, he renewed a tradition of recent American westerns had lost track of. The hero should be a man of few words and many actions. So while Hollywood cowboys were debating capital punishment, Eastwood was spitting and smoking his cigarillo and sneering and gunning down people and getting off a line of dialogue, say, every five minutes. He essentially plays the same character in Coogan's Bluff. This is Coogan's first visit to the city, and there are lots of things he doesn't know. But he does know his own mind. A cab driver charges him 50 cents for luggage consisting of an attache case. 
the fare comes to $2.95. How many stores are there in town named Bloomingdale's, Eastwood asks. One, the cabbie says. Well, we passed it twice. It's still $2.95, including the luggage, the cabbie insists. Okay, here's $3, including the tip. Once safely established, Eastwood goes to pick up his prisoner and gets tangled in a legal hassle with the sheriff, played by Lee J. Cobb. A romantic complication with a social worker, Susan Clark, a double-crossing from a hippie, Tisha Sterling, a showdown with a mean killer, Don Stroud. These involvements are played off one another for an hour, and that's the movie. Don Siegel, who directed, is thoroughly at home in this sort of movie. He encourages Eastwood's laconic, slit-eyed hostility, plays up Lee J. Cobb's frustrated humanism, and has a lot of fun with a motorcycle chase up and down the steps and around the sidewalks of a park. Hollywood used to produce these hard-action cop movies with relative ease, but recently the private eye and cop stuff has been bungled by unsure hands. See Gordon Douglas's uneven direction of Lady in the Cement, for example. Siegel knows what he wants and gets it. And that's the end of the review. So I don't recall the first time I saw Coogan's Bluff, but it had to be on television when I was a teenager. And, and, and even at a young age, I would watch anything with Clint Eastwood in it because he was the ultimate badass. And, and really, he was the second coming of John Wayne. And as usual, Ebert perfectly sums up this film. And while it's not as good as the Dirty Harry series, which would begin three years later, it's a nice wrap of the you know it's a nice wrap up of the 1960s westerns that Eastwood was so successful at starring in. It's actually one of the first you know cop movies he stars in. So he's subtly ushering out the the western vibe, although he will go on to film more westerns in the 1970s, and he's kind of easing into his cop roles, which was very smart. All right, let's just get into the main cast. Of course, you have Quinn Eastwood, who plays Coogan. And at this point, Eastwood was strictly an actor. He would direct his first film in 1971 with Play Misty for Me, which I own and will definitely discuss. His real first success came on the TV series Rawhide, playing Rowdy Yates. Rawhide lasted six years and 216 episodes. Movie-wise, his break came from the Man With No Name trilogy, directed by Sergio Leone, starting with 1964's A Fistful of Dollars. Then you had 1965's A Few Dollars More, or For Few Dollars More, and then wrapping it all up the next year with The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. In addition to Coogan's Bluff, Eastwood also starred in Hang 'em High and Where Eagles Dare in 1968. And yes, if you're a fan of Iron Maiden, this song off Peace of Mind was indeed inspired by the movie, that being Where Eagles Dare. Lee J. Cobb plays Lieutenant McElroy, and Cobb had been acting in films since the early 1930s, but really started to make his mark as playing heavies in film noir in the 1940s. And he'd often play a hard-boiled cop or police captain, or sometimes even a thug. He was great in film noir like Boomerang or Call Northside 777 and The Dark Pass. But his true breakout role was as Johnny Friendly in On the Waterfront, where he played a union mob boss. Other notable films with Lee J. Cobb, 12 Angry Men, The Three Faces of Eve, Exodus, Our Man Flint, and the sequel, In Like Flint, which starred James Coburn, one of my mom's favorite. Susan Clark plays Julie Roth, and Clark at this point was just beginning in her career, mostly appearing on TV shows. She did appear in two films prior to Coogan's Bluff, one being Banning with Robert Wagner and Madigan with Richard Widmark and Henry Fonda. She would eventually be best known for being on the 80s television show Webster as Emmanuel Lewis's adoptive mother with her husband Alex Karras, who was the ex-Detroit Lions defensive lineman. 
The director was Don Siegel, and Quinn Eastwood has always said that both Siegel and Sergio Leone were huge influences on his directing style. So notable films Siegel directed prior to Coogan's Bluff, the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956, The Killers with Lee Marvin and Angie Dickinson, again Madigan with Richard Woodmark and Henry Fonda, and he would go on to direct more excellent films like with Quinn Eastwood like Two Mules for Sister Sarah, The Beguiled, Dirty Harry, and Escape from Alcatraz. The screenwriter was Herman Miller, and prior to Coogan's Bluff, Miller was only writing for television. You know, he he wrote for shows like The Beverly Hillbillies and Rawhide. He would later go on to be the creator of the show Kung Fu. Miller co-wrote Coogan's Bluff with uh, Dean Reasoner and Howard Rodman. The premise that Miller came up with for Coogan's Bluff was used to create the TV show McCloud. All right, so let's just get right into the movie. Clint Eastwood just always looked cool, and he was young and... He's just, he's a badass, and and, you, and this intro scene in Coogan's Bluff is just that. He's a deputy sheriff in, in Arizona, and the opening scene is just terrific. Quint is trying to apprehend a fugitive on the run in the desert who happens to be a Navajo Indian who just killed his wife. So the the guy decides to strip off all his clothes except for a loincloth and attempts to shoot Eastwood. Quint decides to be smart and drives near where he believes the guy is hiding in the rocks and baits him into shooting at him. Quint finds him, and in typical Quint style, says... Put your pants on, chief. So the music score was from Lalo Schiffen, who did the Exorcist and Mission Impossible theme. There's a funny scene where Quint apprehends the prisoner uh, with him, and he goes to his lady friend's house, Melody Johnson, and he handcuffs him to the porch while Quint basically hooks up with her. So the Indian guy chants the whole time, which is pretty funny, and Quint's taking a bath at her place when his commanding officer just happens to see Quint's Jeep parked at her house and was not amused to find his deputy and the woman together, especially while on duty. After that, Quentin is assigned to New York to take back a fugitive uh, who is due to stand trial in Arizona. There's a funny scene where once Quint is in uh, New York, he, everyone thinks he's from Texas because it's uh, he's wearing his hat and cowboy boots, and you know it's just kind of an ongoing joke from uh, the film, and it must be the hat, I guess. Tell me, how many stores are there named Bloomingdale's in this town? One, one. We passed it twice. So as Ebert said, the taxi driver again says the fare is two ninety five, and and again, Quint, even though he comes off as soft spoken, uh, he's got this quiet, quiet badassness to him. 
<laughs> and so he's not going to be taken taken advantage of. And so again, he knows that they passed Bloomingdale's twice, so he's not going to be paying double. And so if the guy wants to charge him two ninety five, that's fine. He's going to get a five cent tip, and he does. Ouija Cobb is always playing a cantankerous character in every movie he's in, and this is really no different. Look, Tex, there's only one way in this world you'll ever lay your hands on James Ringerman. That's if a New York State judge renders him into your custody. You can't even begin to think about that until they release him from Bellevue. You also get to see a very young Seymour Castle as, quote-unquote, the young hoodlum. That's how he's credited as, even though he kind of looks 30. (laughs) He's actually 33, but Seymour Castle always looked old in every one of his films. So he ends up actually groping Susan Clark, who's his probation officer slash psychologist. And it's sort of a weird scene because Quint decides to rough up the guy for getting too handsy. And then Castle just runs off. And this pisses off Clark and baffles Eastwood because I guess she's making strides. And so it didn't really matter that he was kind of uh, grabbing her. But Quint Eastwood didn't put up with it. So one thing you'll notice about movies, especially back in this era, a lot of smoking. And and Quint basically smokes nonstop. So he goes on, quote-unquote, a date with Susan Clark, and there's a funny bit about male-female roles, and she tries to pay half, and Quint thinks it's silly that she even offered to pay. Different era, folks. So Quint kind of acts like he's into alphagenics, which is what Susan Clark's character is into at the time, and, and so he acts interested to basically get into her apartment. And alphagenics was formed to commercialize uh, genome, genomics science, which uh, with scientifically based products aimed at the consumer lifestyle market. And the consumer lifestyle includes physical appearance, mental performance, dating, and identity security. Very um, 1960s. <laughs> so Quint goes to a flea bag motel and the room is $7, though it's posted as $5. The desk clerk says he doesn't have luggage, so Quint shows him his briefcase. The guy says, that isn't luggage. So Quint tells him the cab driver would disagree. <laughs> That's one thing, great thing about Quint Eastwood. He always gets like these one-liners and they don't come off as cheesy, kind of what Schwarzenegger and Stallone used to do. So Coogan finally gets uh, to the mental ward where Don Stroud, uh, James Riggerman, is being held. And this is the, the criminal he has to take back to Arizona. So uh, Stroud's girlfriend, who is played by uh, Tisha Sterling, her character name is Lenny, is with him in his room. And this is where the uh, trippy, far-out 60s vibe comes into play as both of them are high on LSD. Coogan is ambushed at the airport, and um, Stroud escapes and steals Coogan's gun. But like with all Clint Eastwood movies, nobody gave better stares and looks than Clint Eastwood. He still had at this point. It, with Eastwood, it's always... Not what he says, it's like his facial expressions can say everything, and he's the master of that, and he still does that today. I always liked Quinn Eastwood's hair when he was younger. He was just the epitome of cool. Betty Field is great as Stroud's mom in the film, and this would be her last film role. And it's funny because everyone, this is a typical trope of movies like this too. Everyone wants Coogan off the case, but of course he won't leave until he catches his guy. I also like how the shots and scenes of this film are very deliberate. This is not a fast-paced action film, which is kind of refreshing compared to movies today. Nothing is rushed, but the film isn't long. So it's still, it, it feels, I, it, this is going to sound bad, but it feels longer than it really is, but it, it's never boring. Um, you know, like the scenes with Eastwood and Clark are, are pretty drawn out. Eastwood go. This is where the sixty vibe kicks in again. They go to the the pigeon toed orange peel, which is a great scene at a late sixties uh, club in New York. Which is a nice nice snapshot of the vibe of the time. There's a drug scene. You know, there's hippies, LSD. There's nudity in the club, which is pretty 
uh, far out for movies back then. This is unique for the time, plus you get actually a lesbian kiss scene. Uh, again, really ahead of its time. There are naked women painting on, uh, being painted on, on a spinning table, everyone smoking joints. I'm 
One of the guys in the clubs ends up being uh, in the original Dirty Harry film when Quint asks how many shots did he fire. That's the guy. And then he ends up pulling a knife in the club, probably knowing that Dirty Harry's going to get him three years later. You better drop that blade, or you won't believe what happens next, even while it's happening. So Coogan goes back to Wendy's place, and she's playing sitar music. <laughs> Welcome to the 60s. Very of the time. You get the beaded curtain. He hooks up with her, though you don't actually see it, because implied is always better in film at this point. Then we get a terrific fight that is at a pool room, very reminiscent of like the old westerns, and it's filmed really well. Today, it would have been tons of slow motion and CGI bullshit, like all the action uh, superhero movies, and I love this so much better. The blood... However, looked a bit too red, <laughs> but it's a minor beef. I think I'd much rather see a fight scene like this than um, the CGI slow motion. If you think about it, Coogan is really sort of the anti-hero in this film. You're rooting for him, but he's very complicated. And, and as uh, Susan Clark's character discovered, actually, his character is somewhat refreshing compared to today's watered-down PC type of male characters. There's an awesome motorcycle chase scene throughout the park, then on foot. This is towards the end of the film. It's really well filmed, and this is where most of the action in the movie comes from, so it's kind of a satisfying payoff. And I'm not going to give away what happens, but again, it's it's worth your time. There are some fun facts in this film. So the name of the film itself is a reference to a New York City natural landmark, Coogan's Bluff which is in the up, is upper Manhattan overlooking the site of the former uh, longtime home of the New York Giants baseball club, the Polo Grounds. And the double meaning is derived from the name of the lead character. So the DVD version, which I own, is edited approximately three minutes in all regions for unknown reasons. So the missing scenes include Cooging receiving his assignment to return um, Ringerman from New York. There's a short scene in a hospital and in a scene later in which Susan Clark talks about Coogan's bluff, which of course is the lookout point that I just discussed. Their earlier video release on VHS did not have these edits and was un uh, released uncut. So I don't know why they cut them out because, again, it would have been 96 minutes instead of 93 minutes. So according to screenwriter uh, Dean Reisner, uh, who held script meetings after hours with Queen Eastwood in his hotel, he said, I'd leave his suite and I'd be going down the hall and there'd be some girl coming down the hall from the opposite direction and heading into Quint's room. There was always a bunch of girls around him, I'll tell you that. Gals in the, from the office, gals around the set, gals in the picture. So, Quinny Swift was the man. When Coogan is uh, searching in the New York uh, nightclub, a large screen plays a scene from Tarantula from 1955, which was a B-movie sci-fi film that Quinn Eastwood made in early in his career, which he had an uncredited role. That was kind of cool. All right, so if you're a fan of Quinn Eastwood, you might have missed this one because, again, it was kind of like in that transition phase when he was going from his... His westerns, his Italian westerns, into more cop movies, and this kind of blends both. Really well done, and again, I'm a huge fan of Queen Eastwood, as you will find out, because I own a ton of his movies, so hopefully you enjoy him as well. All right, until next week, this is Brian signing off. Hey, this is Brian Davis, and you might know me from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. 
And now get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues, because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the Bad Beat, because even when you lose, you still win. We are officially on Spotify now, so if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there, so if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie (laughs) I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff, and yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to tpublic, that's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C.com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender, you can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to tpublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for damn good movie memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. And the way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbean. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world. And it's my number one podcast signed by Science. Now, and then Science also says... Science! Science also said... My second favorite podcast is It Doesn't Matter, The Rest Suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science!